So, Mark. Yes. I think it's time we talked about decency in film, in general, frankly. Okay. But if you want to talk about film, fine. Well, this week we watched our first pre-code movie. Woo! And I was aghast. And that's the Pirate's Code? Yes, the Pirate's Code. It's more of guidelines from what I understand. <laughs> yes. Um, imagine if movies had to abide by the Pirate's Code. Hey, as long as they're honoring the right of parlay, I'm good with it. Um, no, of course we're discussing the Hayes Code, slash production code, whatever you want to call it, uh, in which the film industry agreed to not cover certain topics in order to avoid getting banned? Uh, banned or boycotted. In yeah. the early years of the film industry, there's no rating system, there's no MPAA or censorship system. Right. And so what happened was it was a locality by locality thing where movies would get based if a state or a city or like a town council decided that its subject matter was too indecent and they wouldn't allow it to be showed. The production code wasn't a law, it wasn't passed okay. by Congress, it was actually put in place by the film industry itself right. so that they could avoid those kinds of bans because a ban is bad for business. So what they did was they put it in place themselves and the studios actually paid the salaries of the people enforcing the code. Right. So it was this entire self-censorship system that they set up in order to avoid having the film industry's legs cut out from under it. Yeah. And it led to the removal of such unsavory imagery as this film in which there is a divorced couple. As well as a couple that is very, even though they don't like show sex on screen, very obviously sexual. Oh, yeah. Um, in 1998, film historian Andrew Saris described this couple as the first on-screen Hollywood couple for whom matrimony did not signal the end of sex, romance, and adventure. And seeing this in a black and white movie from the 30s feels really transgressive. It does. But... In a way, what we're actually seeing is what was, to a certain extent, the norm before the code goes into place just a year after this movie came out. Yeah, you hear stories about, like, Mae West, who was really over-the-top sexual, all of that, the vamps of the 20s. But I would say most pre-code movies weren't that aggressive. No. But they were more frank and open about the idea of women having sex and homosexuality being a thing that existed. Whereas in the years of the code, you have to use coded language to talk about these things. Right. So in this film, there's even a open and frank admission of a man cheating on his wife with his secretary. Yeah, although that doesn't work out so well for him. No, it does not. It doesn't work out for anyone, really, as both are murdered. Yes. <laughs> but in the wake of the Hayes Code, you see similar censorship in other industries. For example, the comic book industry did it in the 1950s with the creation of the Comics Code Authority. Here it is. Or what is? <laughs> Continue. How are the ducks created in the 70s? Yeah, but I assumed. Anytime you say comics, I assume you're moving that way. No, I just think that these are very much of a piece. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and I you agree. See things like with the rise of the modern conservative Christian movement, you see even to the point of like burning books or things that are conceived as being scandalous. Right. You get organizations like Sufi, Save Our Offspring from Indecency, and... What they would do is actually kidnap people and try to brainwash them into no longer being indecent using right. this brainwash machine. <laughs> their leader was the Supreme Sufi, and their very first victim, Mark, Howard the Duck. That's my boy. Ah, uh, I knew it. Uh, that's an unfortunate name, because... Calling someone the Supreme Sufi in general... That's true. <laughs> ...is not great. I hadn't thought of that. Really? That's what I thought of first. I don't think it's a reference to that. I don't think it is. I think it's born out of ignorance more than anything. I think they were trying to get a name that, to 
an American writer sounded ludicrous. Right. And they didn't think like, wait a minute, that's another thing. I mean, I love when you have groups that clearly shoehorned their name into an acronym, an acronym? that doesn't make sense. Like most laws these yeah, days. Yeah, like most laws. The Patriot Act. Uh, it's the USA Patriot Act. USA is part of it. Do you know what it stands for? No, nobody knows what it started, what it stands for. Let me look it up. All right. The act's full title is Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism Act of 2001. That title is an act of terrorism. (laughs) That is the worst thing I've ever read. Yeah, that's horrifying. A terrible act with a terrible name. That title, forget what it does, that title is worse than Howard the Duck. Howard the The Duck. Duck. Okay, um... So yeah, it's exciting. This is our first ever pre-code movie that we're covering. Yeah. Before we move on, though. Yes. We are recording a lot of episodes very quickly and out of sequence. Right. Because Mark is about to abandon America for a while. Yeah, that is true. So we're doing some scrambling, pulling things together. And I just want to make sure that some things go acknowledged as we go through this. This episode comes out on August 13th. Okay. Which is the day after your birthday. It is. It is. So right now on the air, I wanted to give you your birthday present. Oh, no. I wasn't looking for this. I was just in Chicago a few weeks ago. And I stumbled across this and I said, this is Mark. And I uh, put it together and, well, here you go. Oh, it's even wrapped. Let me try and hold it close to the microphone. Jesus Christ. Oh, God. I now own a framed, not picture, I guess it's more of a shadow box, of two full comics of Howard the Duck. Um, Pre-getting sued that he looks too much like Donald Duck, That's right, he's not wearing pants. He's not wearing pants. So it's number 14 and number 16 of Howard the Duck. So these are ones written by Steve Gerber. This is before he was fired off the book. Right. 1977, approved by the Comics Code Authority. That's right. Speaking of decency. Although by the late 70s, the Comics Code was definitely weaker than it was when it started. Oh, I can imagine. Howard 16 actually is pretty great. It is not a comic book. What it is, is Steve Gerber was behind on his deadline. And so instead he wrote... An essay, a series of musings, imagined conversations between himself and Howard as he moved across the country. One page is him conversing with Howard at the Grand Canyon, things like that. And just each page is a double page spread with a painting by one of the big Marvel artists at the time. The caption on the cover is, Howard at the mercy of his most powerful foe, the incredible creator, deadline, doom. It's great. I am currently watching several eBay options trying to get myself Howard the Duck number one. How much is that currently going for? Like five bucks. Oh, yeah. That's not bad. I believe in you, Will. Well, anyway, happy birthday, Mark. Thank you. I'm so happy. You can just hear it right in my voice. Howard the Duck. All right. It's time for Heart of Podness. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We're going to dig in and see what's there. And this week, the movie we're doing is a favorite of yours. Yeah, I really like this one. It's just a very fun movie. It's, I think, the first pre-code movie I ever watched. Uh, I found it at the library on their Friends of the Library cart for a dollar, so I bought it. Love the Friends of the Library. Oh, it's so great. So it's a classic couple who solve crimes, Nick and Nora Charles. 
they've left an indelible mark on our pop culture, even if you haven't noticed it, I'd say. I first became aware of them in Murder by Death, right. the Neil Simon movie, where Dick and Dora Charles are played by David Niven and Maggie Smith in it, a terrific performance. Oh, yeah. It's barely parody, though, because I think they're just playing Nick and Nora it's Charles. basically the same. Yeah, they're not exaggerating that. My favorite is the podcast The Thrilling Adventure Hour, which is in the style of, like, old-timey radio shows, has a Nick and Nora Charles parody in Frank and Sadie Doyle, who are rich, alcoholic, paranormal investigators, played by Paul F. Tompkins and Paget Brewster. That sounds incredible. It's really fun. So, this film is... From the year 1934. That's right. Which is the same year The Code was actually introduced. It's one of the last pre-code movies. And it is a comedy mystery film. So it's definitely very funny. In mystery, that's really interesting. And I feel like it's a very early example in film of the classic solve a mystery at a dinner party. Oh, for sure. Where everyone is just sat down and then the main guy solves the mystery. One of my favorite parts of this one is when he's explaining the mystery, his wife leans over and just goes, how do you know all this? He's like, I don't. I'm just making it up as I go along. Well, what's funny is that actual scene, William Powell kept forgetting the lines and getting confused about the plot that he was explaining. Yeah. So this is a movie where they rarely did more than one take, but they kept having to do that scene over and over again because he couldn't keep track of the revelation. Yeah, it's very complicated, so I don't super blame him. Uh, this movie was also nominated for Best Picture. It was? Yep. It wound up losing to It Happened One Night, and it also got a nomination for Screenplay for its writers, Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, who were a married couple. They got three other screenplay nominations over the course of their lifetime, they also won a Pulitzer for writing the play of The Diary of Anne Frank. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. They also wrote It's a Wonderful Life. Aw. Which is a great movie we should cover. One of your favorites. I love that movie. The Nick and Nora Charles characters were actually created by the same guy who created Sam Spade. Right, Dashiell Hammett. Yeah, so he wrote the book The Thin Man, which is what this is based off of, as well as The Maltese Falcon, other Sam Spade movies that I can't think of right now. The Big Sleep, is that Sam Spade? Who knows? That's a good one. By the way, if you have not seen the trailer for this movie, it is well worth seeking out. Oh, yeah. It's just, I'll post it on Twitter, but it's just William Powell standing in a giant cover of The Thin Man, and then he steps out to have a chat about what the movie's about. And then it actually transitions into scenes from the movie, Into right? scenes from the movie, but then it goes yeah. back to him, and he fades into the book. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love really old movie trailers when they're still figuring out exactly what they want them to be. Right. Uh, so this is a great movie with uh, canine acting, which yes. I really appreciated. That's another reason I like this one. Yeah, he kind of steals the show a couple of times. Yeah, so they own a wire-haired fox terrier named Asta, who comes with them wherever they go, regardless of whether he's welcome. Yeah. And he's played by the canine actor Skippy, who is actually in quite a few movies. I think he's in most of the Thin Man movies. I believe there were five sequels to this movie. Yeah. Although all of them kind of decreased on some of the stuff that we said we liked about this because they were postcode movies. Oh my gosh. Skippy acted from the year 1932 to 1947. Wow. Or, no, 41. Okay. That makes more sense. I'm guessing by 41, he wasn't doing any new tricks in the movies. Yeah, so by 44 and 47, there was Skippy, I think a Skippy 2, essentially, that played Asta for the last two Thin Man movies. Makes sense. Yeah. That dog actually was not a dog that liked hanging out with humans yeah. in between shots. I heard he bit Myrna Loy. He did indeed. Yeah, that's rough. But also that's apparently... Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> apparently William Powell and Myrna Loy are... Got along really well, though. Yeah. I mean, 
that's what you would hope for when you're going to do six movies together. Actually, more than that, because they had done other movies prior to this. Yeah, not necessarily the case in all instances, but... No, for sure. They got along really well, which I think does translate into their relationship on screen. Yeah, there's a very casual kind of air to all of it. Yeah. Which is also encouraged by the director, W.S. Van Dyke, who wanted actors to be as natural as possible. So he wanted to do as few takes as possible. Yeah. A lot of times would just do one and not bother shooting it from another angle to get coverage. He's like, ah, you start to get artificial. So they moved on really quickly in making this. He frequently wouldn't tell actors when they were supposed to go on until right before so that they wouldn't be like, I'm walking on set now. Yeah. This is, this sounds kind of like a terrible way to get directed. It sounds like a terrible way to run a movie. Yeah. And I'm glad that it worked out as well as it did. So I think that. We should probably give a brief summary of the actual crime of this movie. That's we're not, a good idea, because yeah. I think you're planning on doing an unusual structure for our points. Yeah, we're bringing back an old classic. And by old classic, I mean we've done it in one other movie. In January. In January. So I'll quickly run through what actually happened in this movie. This... If you're able to explain it in one go, then you're better than William Powell. <laughs> I hope so. I probably won't. So Dorothy Winant is a... I'm guessing she's probably, what, like 19? Something like that. Yeah. yeah, so she shows up. She's engaged to a man she met three months ago. This was, by the way, a situation much like Vertigo, where I started off taking notes about the two of them, assuming they were going to be a central romance throughout the movie. Unlike Vertigo, I did not fall madly in love with Dorothy. Yeah. So I didn't commit to that the whole way through. Yeah, so Dorothy and Tommy are talking to her dad, and she asks his permission to marry, or he asks his permission to marry her and she basically says i don't want it anyway she's great i liked her she's very independent so then what happens is her dad has a wedding present in the form of fifty thousand dollars worth of treasury bonds so he goes to get it turns out they've been stolen (gasps) he's been sleeping with his assistant julia for a while now yeah quite a while but they're not married but it led to the divorce like that we talked about earlier but then right so he has been divorced from dorothy's mom for a while right and Dorothy still lives with her mother, her mom, and as her well stepdad. as her brother Gilbert. Yeah, and her stepdad. Wow, they're all weird in that family. Gilbert um, is the best character in this movie. He's so weird. But he confronts Julia for stealing the bonds because she probably did. Right. And then he has to go away on business and is like, "If I don't have all of the money back by the time I get back, bad things will happen." Right. So originally, Julia, who again is his mistress, said she could get him twenty-five thousand, but she couldn't get him the whole fifty. Right. He's like, get it all, or yeah. else. So he goes away, and he's supposed to be back before Christmas, but by Christmas Eve, he still hasn't shown up. Dorothy gets worried, and she runs into Nick Charles, who she knew as a little girl at a hotel. Right. Nick is a retired detective who lives in San Francisco, Yeah, but he and his wife are spending Christmas in the big city. Right, so he's retired to take care of Nora's father's businesses, because Nora is an heiress. But it sounds like they didn't actually get access to any of the money until her dad died. Yeah. But now he runs like a lumber mill and all this stuff. So they're really rich and alcoholic and then oh are they oh are they and he says oh i'm sure it'll be fine and tries to comfort her and then she goes away and his wife shows up with a bunch of christmas presents and then drinks six martinis in a row well when nick is there he is on his sixth and nora shows up gets one and says what's that for you and he goes six and she says put five in a row right here keep in mind though that she's like six inches shorter than him and very thin and also drinking them much faster than he is yeah so the next morning one thing i appreciated she's actually hung over oh yeah which is very rare in a movie like this where they're strong alcoholics but 
everything happens. People keep trying to get Nick to help solve the mystery. And he's like, no, I'm retired, man. Yeah, so he keeps refusing, but they... Nick and Nora keep getting drawn further and this further in. This movie is like 70% refusal of the call. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a lot. But then by the end, he caves, solves the mystery. And he has everyone over for a big dinner party. Yeah, so he hosts a big dinner party enforced by the cops. Yeah, this is, he's friends with the police. So he has them go and force all of the possible suspects to attend this dinner party, including ones who are trying to leave town, ones who refuse. He has the police, like, pull them out of their homes, and instead of bringing them to a police station, bring them all to this dinner party at the Charles's house, which is apparently a thing they're fine doing. Oh, Meanwhile, yeah. some of the cops are also going to be undercover as the wait staff, so they can keep an eye on things, and are just hilariously terrible at it. Oh, it's so great. We're like, they're yelling at people like, Have a drink! Have a drink! <laughs> so, apparently cops don't Eat know how to- Eat these hors d'oeuvres! They had to shoot that scene so many times and keep bringing the same food out that the oysters started to putrefy under the lights. Oh, God. That sounds disgusting. Eat the oysters! <laughs> Eat them! Now! All right, so during the dinner, Nick is unraveling the plot of the mystery of all of this. Not really sure who it is at the beginning of the meal. He's just kind of rambling. Yeah, and Nora keeps calling him on it. But by the end, it's revealed he doesn't actually out the guy by name, but he's figured it out. And then turns out it's, oh, we forgot to actually say, wine it's dead or missing. <gasps> and there's been two other bodies found. And they don't know wine it's dead until the end. They think he did it. Right, so they think he did it. But then... Nick is like, oh, Wynant is actually dead the whole time, and it's his business partner that did it. Oh, no. And then he tries to shoot me. His business partner who is also sleeping with his assistant? No. no, his assistant's killed. Yes. So it's just the random guy who is working with the mistress, not actually sleeping with her, but working with her to get money. To steal the money, right. Right. So then, in the end, he's tackled by the cops and taken to jail, and everyone lives happily ever after. And Nick and Nora presumably go and have several drinks. Oh, yeah. And then probably get too drunk, but try and have sex anyway. That's well, e they go on the train. The movie ends with them oh, on the train. Oh, they're on the train, yeah. With their dog. I love that Dorothy and Tommy are in full clothes, and Nick and Nora are both just straight up in PJs in the dining car. I feel like that's their default look. Yeah, they wear PJs through a lot of this movie. Can we talk about Nora's PJs? Can we talk about Nora's whole outfit selection? glamorous. As all get She's out. so great. At one point, she wears a nightgown where the sleeves are just They're as like long as the, the floor. train. Like, it's all dragging behind her. And she's in bed in this outfit. She looks like she belongs, like, in a scene from Fantasia. Just, like, swirling with, like, fabric everywhere. Oh, yeah. We'll tweet out a picture of this nightgown. Because it is intense. That's what I want for my birthday. Okay, I'll work on getting it for you. But now that we've run through the plot really rambly because it's very complicated. Hey, if the actor who had to do it couldn't do it, we don't have to either. We're going to break this movie down by romance by romance. So we're going to talk about five different couples from the movie, which, as you might remember, we did in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. A gem of a list of romances, if ever there were one. Oh, true enough. So this movie, we'll start with the main couple, Nick and Nora. And analyze their relationship. And I think what we should do is really quickly power through each of the questions after. So we'll do, we'll talk about the relationship and then rate it and all that. Cool. For each one. How does right. that sound? Sounds good to me. Okay. Um, quick aside on our main couple, Nick and Nora Charles. Yes. I almost referred to them as the titular couple, but they are not. I know. The titular thin man is Mr. Winant. Right. Our murder victim and also murder suspect. Yes. But so many audiences assumed that it referred to Nick Charles that they then referred to all the other movies as Thin Man movies. Who isn't necessarily thin? 
No, not really. He's not he's not thin. He's just normal. But so the reason that it's pointed out that he's the thin man is his body was buried in purposely staged fat clothes. Right. So to people, try and throw the police off the scent. Right. They wouldn't recognize him. And it was only through a piece of shrapnel in his shin bone that Nick recognized him. Because I think they go way back. Like the Charleses know the Winans. Yes. Uh, I mean, Dorothy recognizes him in a bar. Right. So Nick and Nora, let's talk their marriage. What do you think, Will? I think it's delightful. They're one of my favorite on-screen couples. They're so fun together. They're so fun. They have great banter. And while they have a lot of actual jabs, they convey them in an actually funny manner while maintaining a clear love for each other. Yeah, for sure. This is a couple that bickers, but also while- It's very playful for the most part. It is very playful. And then- while turns out the bad guy is on the phone they're just looking at each other and making fun of him the whole time yeah and they're always having a good time and looking to have a good time together nick spends the whole movie not wanting to do this case he's retired yeah and nora is like hey i've never seen you be a detective that would be fun let's do it so she's pushing him for it the whole time looking for an adventure yeah so they're two rich people that get drunk and want to have a good time yeah, that's, they're that's pretty much <laughs> that's who they are. They do. They wear fabulous nightgowns. Right. So one of the first there is that one scene where Nick punches her together. Out of <laughs> oh the way. yeah, he could have done it in a better way. They're but... in bed, and this guy Morelli shows up, and he's holding a gun. He's shown up to point a gun at Nick and Nora to be like, "I am not the murderer. You tell everyone I'm not the murderer," which is a hilarious plan. <laughs> it's a choice, and Nick decides that he's going to do something to handle Morelli. So. He punches Nora to get her out of the line of fire, then throws a pillow at Morelli. And then... Why not flip those, even? Hit Nora with the pillow, if you've got to hit her, and punch punch Morelli. I mean, there is the spacing issue with that. Yeah. That would be tough, because... So Nora's, like, right behind him. Right. He could have just shoved her, though. Yes. So he punches her, knocks her out. He winds up reviving her by pouring liquor into her mouth. (laughs) Yeah, these guys have a real alcohol problems so but when the police show up they're like oh who knocked her out he's like i did don't worry about it (laughs) yeah and after she drinks the alcohol she's also just like that was rude but then moves on because she also can tell that it was just to save her life but it was done in a poor way for sure that was a weird directorial choice you know what's the other weird thing about nick what he's friends with all of the criminals that he puts away <laughs> i loved that every as a time choice. he sees a criminal he's like hey how's it going and here's somebody mentioning another one he's like you know i've been meaning to go and see him yeah so the thing is nick is just eminently likable yes that that's is true. the point of the character everyone likes him he has a bunch of friends at their they have a rager of a christmas party where everyone is off their faces oh yeah but one of my favorite lines is right at the beginning when Nora shows up for the first time and he's introducing her to Dorothy. Remember, she has the dog. He's like, oh, Dorothy Winant, this is my dog, Asta. Oh, and my wife, Nora. And she just goes, well, I could have gotten first billing on that one, which really sets up their relationship. Yeah. But one of my favorite scenes is when he, after Morelli is taken away, he goes out to investigate and Nora runs up and does a full like confession of love and is actually shown worrying for the first time yeah and it's very touching and at the same time though she's always trying to get in on the mission so for example he's going off to (laughs) investigate something and nora keeps insisting on going along and nick is saying no you can't come no you can't come and she's like well i'm going with you and so when the cab pulls up she gets in first and he just closes the door and (laughs) tells it to go to grant's tomb yeah and pays the cab driver um he does call her dr watson at one point yeah so he thinks of her as like a partner but he's also super protective Mm. is their general vibe is what i got out of it 
Yeah, no, they're fun. They're very fun. There is a scene set on Christmas morning, the day after Morelli's attack slash request that they not pin him as a criminal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they've given each other Christmas presents. Nick is using a small gun to shoot ornaments off a Christmas tree, which was not in the script. That's just something that William Powell started doing. Yep. And Nora is showing off this coat, which she acknowledges it's too hot to wear, but it's nice. And Nick says, is that another Christmas present? She says, yes. He says, did I get it for you? And she says, yes. He goes, oh, I'm spoiling you. Uh, Which actually reminded me of the scene in Iron Man where Tony and Pepper are dancing and Tony's like, it's a nice dress. And she's like, thanks, you bought it for me. I wonder if that's an actual reference. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think so. Maybe not. They have a very similar vibe, though. Yeah. Pepper and Tony. Pepper and Tony are fun. Yeah. One scene that I like, too, is when they were sitting down to drink, because that's all they do. He asked the waiter to clear flowers off the table, and it doesn't actually say it, but it's clearly so he can see her better. It's very cute. I like them a lot. So their romantic story basically doesn't really change throughout the film. Nope, they're just fun. They're just fun, drunk, and in love. And it ends with the two of them sitting in their PJs in a dining car. Uh, Well, they go back to their uh, sleeper car. Right, and then saying goodnight, and then... Heavily implying they're about to go have sex on a train. Yeah, train sex. Joining the Mile Long Club. <laughs> Is that a thing? I've heard that somewhere. I have no idea where. I think that was. Des- I don't think that was describing the train. I think it is. It's like the Mile High Club, but on a train, so it's very long. I don't think the train is what's very long. If you say so. I refuse to acknowledge this really obvious <laughs> and terrible joke. Uh, so, Will, what yeah. do you think of their marriage? Is I think it it's believable? Great. I think it's fun. Uh, I don't know about believable it's not like a 10 no it's definitely not a 10 but it's high it is high i feel like it makes sense that these two wicked smart bantery people would fall in love yeah especially since they have the wealth to indulge their madness yeah or nora does at least yes but it's also clear he's not a gold digger either no no not at all so what would you rate it maybe like an eight yeah i'm thinking an eight yeah nick and nora are great are they dateable Yes, but I don't know that I would marry them. I think that I could not keep up with their alcoholism, either one, and that makes it very difficult. I think it's one where you just have to be, like, pounding water and making it look like you're drinking. Yeah, there's no way I could keep up. Maybe that's what they're both doing. They're both pounding water to keep up the charade, and they don't realize that that's what's going on. But she gets a hangover. I'm not saying all the time. I'm saying some of the time. Maybe. I still love when he revives her from passing out with a bottle of whiskey. She's like, here, use this. They've called a doctor. (laughs) Yeah, there's a doctor there. I think that they are very funny people, and I like that in a potential romantic partner, but being straight-up alcoholics is... Not ideal. Not ideal. All right, couple two. Dorothy Winant and Tommy. This is my favorite one of them. I mean, like, Nick and Nora are actually the best, but... Right. Of the rest? Yeah, for sure. They're young, they're in love. Yeah, it's the first couple we see when Dorothy goes to her dad, and he's at first, he's like, what, another young man? And she's like, it's been the same one for three months. Take a good look. He's gonna be your son-in-law. We're getting married! So clearly Dorothy has had a lot of boyfriends for maybe no more than a week. Good for Dorothy. And then, I'm here for it, and then three months in, let's get married! Which is not that unusual for the time. No. I just still have so much trouble conceiving of that. Imagine marrying someone you've known for three months. I mean, you know what? The world is crazy and weird and... Why not? Yeah. I wouldn't do it, but whatever. I love how Tommy is the only credited character without a last name. Well, I think he's going to take her last name when they get married. Probably. He's going to be Tommy Wynant. Yeah. So, the other... Speaking of her family, 
when the dad hears that they're going to get married, his response is, has he seen the whole family? And she goes, yes, and he still wants to marry me, which is something I appreciated immensely. Oh, yeah, because it's also understandable why he would ask Her family that. is wild! They're Let's talk crazy. about Gilbert. Okay, well, tell us what you think of Gilbert. So, Gilbert, are they twins? I don't think it's established that they're twins, but they're similar age. Yeah, so Gilbert is Dorothy's brother. And he is a weirdie. Yeah, he's really into Freudian psychoanalysis. At one point, he accuses Dorothy of having an edible complex and follows that up immediately like, now I know I have a mother fixation, but... And then he gets interrupted. So that's a weird thing. He talks a lot about his crystals. And later on, when they believe that their father is the murderer, Dorothy's freaking out. She's like, oh my gosh, like... My father's a murderer. Like, there's I'll murder. be a murderer. My I'm going to be a murderer. My will children be. will be murderers. And her brother tries to comfort her by saying, like, look, I've been studying Mendelian genetics. And under that, if you have four children, only one of them would be a murderer. Which is only true if the murderer gene is recessive. And she marries someone else with the recessive murderer gene. But what if it's a dominant gene? The aggression of murder forces out the non-murderer gene. And so if you had four children, actually, three of them would be murderers. Well, that's actually more of a Lamarckian genetic ideal. Yes. So, but also, either uh, way, it's not going to happen. Genetic murder. It's really cute because at this point, she's freaked out. She's like, I can't do this. I can't do this to my boy, Tommy. So she declares that she's not going to get married because she couldn't bear to saddle him with murderous youth. Yeah. Oh, poor Tommy. And then she tries to run away. She tries to flee the city. She tries to flee the city, but she's dragged into the... Into the dinner party. Into the dinner because party. the police captured her trying to leave the city and forced her to go to a dinner party. Right. And she's with some guy who she, like, just met. Some dude that she, like, picked up at the train station. Yeah, who's older and... Kind of creepy. <laughs> creepy. But Tommy is also invited. And he's really upset, naturally. Yeah. Because the whole time she's going on about the murder stuff, he's like, I don't care. Our kids won't be murderers. You'll be yeah. fine. And she's like, you don't know genetics. Yeah. One of my children will be a murderer, or maybe three if it's a dominant gene. We'll have to study this! Yeah, so I think Tommy was only invited to the dinner party because Nick wanted them to get back together. Yeah, totally. So at one point, he punches out the guy she brought, and then when Nick reveals that, uh, what's his name? Clyde Wynant, her dad, is actually dead, Tommy's the one that comforts her, and in the end... They get married, and they're on the train. Gilbert says that he has seen their father recently in his crystals. Oh my god, Gilbert. And this is at the same time that Mimi is lying and pretending that she's seen him. But Gilbert also saw him in the crystal. Who is Gilbert? What a weird character. He's the best character. So, Dorothy, Wynant, and Tommy. They go on a joint honeymoon with, with the Charles and Nora Charles. I'm guessing they're maybe honeymooning in San Francisco, so they're on the train together. Probably. How long would that train ride take at that time? Do you know? Probably like a week. I feel like maybe three or four days. I wonder. Because train tech is at the height of its, like, prominence. So it's probably fast. I can't imagine being on a train that long. Looks like it would take about three days. Three days? Okay. Let's see how long it would take today on Amtrak. So total travel time would be 82 hours and 45 minutes. So about three days. Yeah. So it hasn't really improved unsurprisingly yeah you know yeah so what do you think yeah i'd say it's pretty believable it's very fast i don't know that someone would believe murder is genetic although actually in the 1930s we're still kind of at peak eugenics oh so it might be plausible that people would think that that's something that could be inherited yeah i mean it definitely makes sense to me because they're 
young and in love. Mm-hmm. I Like I said, I guess is they're between 18 and 25. Yeah, this one would be lower for me than Nick and Nora. Yeah, just because we also get less. Tommy doesn't even have a last name. I would probably give it a 7. Six or seven. I was thinking six or seven, yeah. Yeah. Do you think they're dateable? Yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't marry Dorothy because our children would be murderers. But Tommy seems like a nice, rational, strapping young lad. Yeah. Dorothy seems fun, though. She seems fun. She's definitely the most fun But she's got, like, the wild fun of someone who is likely to be a murderer. Okay. So Will's clearly on board with murder as genetic trait. You can't prove otherwise. Um, Do you think they'd stay together? Oh, we forgot to talk about that with Nick and Nora, but... I just consider it a given. Yeah. Um, do I think they would stay together? I think they'll stay together until she kills him. Sounds fair to me. So let's move on to Clyde Winant, the titular thin man himself, and his assistant, Julia Wolf. Clyde's dead. And so is Julia, so we so, can already answer that they won't stay together. All right. Uh, do you think it's a believable relationship? So Julia was his assistant. Right. And also his mistress. Yes. Which led to the breakup of his marriage. Yes. And then she stole all his money. Correct. And expected to get away with stealing $50,000? It was $50,000 in savings bonds. Yeah. So it's not like cash on hand. Yeah. So unless he goes looking for the savings bonds, he's unlikely to notice. But at some point, someone's going to notice that they have those bonds. I think she was just like hoping to have a plan by then. Yeah. I want to know what she did with the money. I mean, she's she was in with the mob. That's, That's another true. point because she dated Joe Morelli, which we'll talk about after this. Ah, uh, Morelli. Yeah, Morelli, king of the problem solvers. <laughs> yeah, here come the problem solvers. I think one thing that adds to the weird, weirdly believability of it, but also not, is that Julia Wolf looks exactly like his ex-wife Mimi. That really confused me for a while. They have the same haircut, the same like tight finger wave blonde bob. I thought they were the same person for a bit. Me too, the first time I watched it. On a second watch, it becomes easier to tell them apart. Yeah, one of them is a mistress and one of them is an ex-wife. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty believable. Yeah. They're terrible. They're both bad people. Clyde is super forgetful. It's interesting because they make him out to be kind of a lovable goof at the beginning with his relationship with Dorothy. He's super forgetful. But, like, nobody's that surprised that he just goes AWOL for three months either. Yeah. Like, his business is generic science. So it's something like maybe he's on the Manhattan Project. Not in 34. I know, but... The equivalent of the 34 secret science experiments. Yeah. DOD. Yeah. So he just goes away for three months, but he also has a dark side because he threatens to kill Julia. That's right. But he's also so forgetful, he fires a guy and then two minutes later forgot that he fired him and gives him more instructions. And he's like, why are you leaving? He's such a weirdo. He is. What is Whitehead's deal? <laughs> I don't know. It's such a weird character. And then Julia's just the clear gold digging assistant. So 10 point scale. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> Five? No, it's probably better than that. It's probably yeah. as believable as the other one. Six that's or true. Seven. Six or seven. Just uh, they're bad doesn't mean that it's not believable. That's true. Uh, what about Joe Morelli and Julia Wolf? Because they're also clearly still hooking up at the I same time. I love Joe Morelli. Joe Morelli is Joe Morelli such a great character. He's right up there with Gilbert for best character in this movie. Here's my plan. To prove my innocence in killing someone, I will go tell someone to tell the cops that I didn't do someone it. Someone that I heard on the street. When he shows up, he's like, everyone says you're a good guy. So I need you to say that I didn't kill them. And he's like, I have nothing to do with this case. I need you to say it. See this gun that I'm holding in your face. I will kill you unless you tell them it's I didn't kill anyone. I've come to your house in the dead of night with this gun. Not the brightest tool in the crayon box. 
I like when he goes to the dinner party and he's convinced the entire time that it's a trap, that he's going to be pinned for the murders. And so, like, for example, when Nick says he's going to reveal it, Joe Morelli's, like, jumping out of his chair. He's like, you're not pinning this on me! Yeah, Joe Morelli has some... I'm not going down for this! (laughs) He has some control issues. So, do you think their relationship is believable as Julia, probably a former gun mall who is hooking up with Joe... Mobman Morelli. Probably. Yeah. We don't get a lot of Julia. I like it when Joe Morelli's current squeeze is like, I don't deal with uh, criminals. And if I did deal with criminals, I wouldn't deal with stool pigeons. And if I did deal with stool pigeons, I still wouldn't deal with you. That's actually a different guy's girl. I can't keep track of all these people. <laughs> That's Nunheim, who's a police informant. It's a good line. It is a good line. Uh,. That's another relationship, but we don't even get her name at all, so I didn't include that one. Like, all these people have the same hair. Yeah. So, rating, probably like a six or seven, too. Yeah, sure. Why not? And, again, Julia's dead, so we can't say if they stay together. They don't. Julia's dead. And then here's the last couple, Chris Jorgensen and Mimi Winant Jorgensen, who is Clyde Winant's ex-wife, who remarried to Cesar Romero. I did not realize it was Cesar Romero. Me neither. I don't recognize him without his face painted. Yeah, he's really young, too. So, their relationship is introduced in a scene where he's sitting in a chair with his back to the audience, so you don't know he's there until Mimi and Dorothy are fighting about money, how Mimi is trying to get Dorothy to get more money out of her father. Her father's dead. We don't know that. Yeah, and Dorothy's like, well, you wouldn't need as much money if Chris worked. And Chris stands up and is so offended at the idea that he might work that he leaves. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. And then we basically don't really see him anymore. Yeah. And then the big reveal at the end is he was already legally married and was just gold digging Mimi. Shocking revelation. There's a lot of that in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So Mimi was never actually Mimi Wine and Jorgensen. This movie is like, don't trust rich people. Yeah. Unless, Unless it's Nick- Nora. <laughs> Only trust rich people if they're alcoholics. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how the movie goes. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of my favorite relationships because it's just... What, the relationship of Nick and Nora and alcohol? I mean, yeah, that's the that's number 10. Like, that's a full perfect 10. <laughs> um, no, like Chris Jorgensen and Mimi because she's so dumbly, blindly in love with him. Yes, she's stunned to discover that he's married. Yeah, and it's so apparent because... He leaves at the implication that he might get a job, which also this is the 30s where the idea that a man didn't have a job was shocking enough as it is. Right. So those are our five romances. Yeah. This movie is wild. This movie is great. It's a train ride. I really liked it. It is a fun movie. It's very fun. But you just kind of spend the movie being like, what is happening? Not in a bad way. Just being like, everyone is having fun, but they have no idea what's happening and neither do I. And then at the end, Nick lays it all out and you're like, okay. Yeah. It's oysters! Not, it's Eat not, the oysters! It's not a mystery. They're putrefied! It's not a movie you could solve, that's for sure. No, not at all. But it's a mystery comedy. It's not, like, pure mystery. It's there to be fun. You're not pinning this on me! <laughs> I'm holding this gun in your bedroom! <laughs> I'm a good man, and if you don't tell the cops tell the I'm police. good, I will kill you! <laughs> and then punch your wife. <laughs> oh, Feed boy. her some alcohol to wake her up. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would I be? don't even know. <laughs> Gilbert. <laughs> That's like last on my list. He's so creepy. I think my real answer is Joe Morelli. Oh boy. He's a crazy criminal, but he's I like he's got a he's got a wild energy that I think is exciting. 
He's a loose cannon. He's a wild card. If you say so. I think I might pick Nora because she's fun and rich. Okay, my real answer is Dorothy. Yeah. Dorothy's I mean, cool. Dorothy's the real answer. Dorothy's cool. Yeah. And we could have a lot of fun until she or our children murdered me. Maybe I'll date Tommy. Okay. He's also fun. Yeah. We could all ride Solidly a train. built. We could all ride a train together. That would be fun. Mile long. Well, that about murderers! does it for this movie. Murderers! <laughs> the Thin Man 2 is child murderers. Thin Man 2 Sons of Dorothy. I would watch that one. It'd be awesome. And they throw rancid oysters at you to kill you. Nick and Nora, our elderly couple, have to be dragged back in to solve this murder. Uh, I think that about does it. Yeah, I think so. What's next, William? Okay, so looking ahead, uh, next week we're going to be doing another movie that takes its title from a character description. We're going to be doing an old school Jeff Goldblum, Emma Thompson, British comedy, 1989's The Tall Guy. Yeah, I know nothing about this movie. I've it's, heard good things. Uh, it's another hospital movie, like The Big Six, so we're going to be bringing back our hospital expert, Mora, to talk a little bit about it. It was requested by Ray Y. Who is possibly the biggest fan of this podcast. Yeah, shout out to Ray. You're the best. Yeah. Uh, of course, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Heart of Podness, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at heartofpodness at gmail.com. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people find the show. And of course, our last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Get drunk. <laughs> Actually, no, that's just something you save till you're already married. Oh, I was going to say, if you want to find out if someone is serious, say, I have the murderer gene. Are you still interested in me? And if they say yes, you know it's the real deal. Yeah. But you should also find out if they have the murderer gene, because if you've both got the murderer gene, then you're definitely going to have three murderous children. I think that you should go the Morelli route and just hold a gun and yell, I'm a good person! I'm in love with you! <laughs> Until someone dates you. Oh, God. Tell the police! <laughs> Tell the police that I'm a good person! It's one o'clock in the morning! Oh, my God. Well, there you Everyone go. says you're a good guy! <laughs> I am waving a finger gun at Mark every time I do this. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. Down by the sea lived a lonesome oyster Every day getting sadder and moister He found his home life awfully wet And longed to travel with the upper set Poor little oyster Fate was kind to that oyster We know when one day the chef From the park casino Saw that